from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you too can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons, and it will be on Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. This is also going to be a two-parter because there is just so much information, and I find it all so very significant and relevant to what you and I are interested in. So let's get into it. Theodore John Kaczynski was born on May 22, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. Some other notable people born this year were Harrison Ford, Jimi Hendrix, Stephen Hawking, Paul McCartney, Calvin Klein, Martin Scorsese, one of our most famous serial killers, John Wayne Gacy, and Joe Biden, to give you some perspective. Popular movies in 1942 included Disney's Bambi and Casablanca. Also this year, 26 countries agreed to join the United Nations. But life for most of the world was preparing to make a serious flip. In the U.S., car manufacturers switched from making automobiles to war materials. The military draft age was lowered from 21 years old to 18. And all of that as Japan took Guam, Hong Kong, Singapore, and the Philippines. Then we had the Manhattan Project beginning, and after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. had fully entered World War II. The U.S. led its first air raid attack on the Japanese main islands. But the U.S. also had to begin rationing gasoline only, allowing three gallons per week. Also this year, the U.S. military developed duct tape, which, on a personal level and for the people that we study, it was very much appreciated. But on the other end of the spectrum, instant coffee was developed. Ugh. So this was the atmosphere that Ted was born into. You know, to give us an idea of any stresses his mother might have been under during the pregnancy or other outward environmental stressors. His father was Theodore Richard Kaczynski, though he was called Turk, born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1912. His father, Ted's grandfather, Jacob, had been an immigrant from Poland. 
Ted's mother, Wanda Dumbeck, born in 1917, was originally from Montgomery County, Illinois, just a bit northeast of St. Louis, Missouri, and I believe her parents had originally been from Poland as well. Both Turk and Wanda had been raised Polish Catholic, but much later became agnostic, atheists. It was near the very end of the Great Depression when a vibrant and passionate young Wanda met sausage maker Turk Kaczynski at the settlement house. It was here where immigrants gathered for some camaraderie, exchange useful information and better themselves, to learn English and to meet other immigrants to become socially active. Turk and Wanda were both blue-collar intellectuals, described as well-read. Eventually, Turk and Wanda's time together consisted of long strolls through the city with stimulating but sometimes heated political debate. Wanda always was more liberal than Turk, more outspoken, which both exasperated and challenged him in a good way. They dated for three years before they could afford to get married but get married they did on April 11, 1939. Ted was born three years later, a thankfully healthy baby who was happy, belly laughed, and quite active. But then, when he was nine months old, he began to develop a troublesome case of hives on his body, and his mother took him to the doctor for a simple checkup. Now, as the story goes, his little body was strapped down, his legs spread wide open, so they could evaluate what was going on with him. This makes me think the hives must have been in his groin area. Wanda later said that infant Ted incessantly cried and would stretch his little arms out as much as he could. Ted was absolutely terrified to the point that his eyes began to cross from the terror and stress he was experiencing. And to make matters worse, Wanda and Turk were barely allowed to sit with or even visit the baby. David, Ted's younger brother, gave an interview later where he said, quote, Mom always faulted the hospital. They would have been there every day visiting him, but the hospital said no. It was kind of like, we don't want parents to be in our way. We've got our work to do. We have our little baby to cure, so keep your distance. End quote. They were only allowed to visit him two times a week for two hours. So in an article from the Chicago Tribune, Wanda said, quote, The hospital kept baby Teddy for more than a week, letting me see him only twice for an hour each visit. He was abandoned as far as he knew. It just broke my heart when I would visit because he was lifeless, limp, end quote. When Ted finally was discharged, Wanda stated, quote, I came to pick him up and he was like a little rag doll. He didn't look at me. He didn't respond in any way. It frightened the hell out of me. It was really a very painful episode in our lives. End quote. Now, according to David, who was obviously not yet born, but grew up hearing the story, said that Ted had completely shut down after returning home and stopped smiling or having eye contact with his parents. Wanda said that it took quite a bit of time for him to begin behaving a bit more normally, but he was really never 
completely the same. The Washington Post wrote an article where they stated that Ted's parents, as well as young Ted, were described as bookish and a bit odd to their neighbors, but a lovely family all the same. So when Ted was six years old, a close friend of Turk's, who was a child psychologist, gave the child an IQ test to which he scored between 160 and 170. For those who aren't familiar, a score that high is considered exceptionally gifted. Only 0.03% of the world's population score this high. That hopefully gives you some perspective. Ted's little brother David was born when Ted was seven years old. He had already begun early elementary and reports from his teachers and staff from them were all favorable. He was said to have been respectful, studious, well-adjusted, seemed perfectly healthy. Turk adored the outdoors and had actually wanted to be a park ranger, but with a wife and two children, he felt the pay wouldn't be enough to support his family. He and his wife found it important to teach their sons the love of nature and took young Ted for walks. The Kaczynskis went for picnics in the nearby Forest Reserve and swam in Lake Michigan on visits to Michigan's Warren Dunes State Park. And as David got big enough, the boys hiked with their father and sat around campfires as Turk told stories about what life was like for the early Native Americans. But Ted really seemed to enjoy outings very much, and to him, it was a refuge away from people and social expectations of how he should act or who he should be. Ted also absolutely loved and adored his younger brother. According to an article from the Washington Post, Wanda recalls bringing the new baby home from the hospital, quote, I put David in Ted's arms and said, you know, we three, you, your daddy and I, have to take care of him so that he'll grow up to be as big and as nice as you are, end quote. And she said that he was hooked from that time on. David was often the only human Ted seemed to care about, Wanda says. And David looked up to him in turn, impressed by how smart and independent his big brother seemed. Ted was hugely protective of his little brother. And when Ted had nightmares, they were sometimes about his inability to protect David. Once, Wanda remembers, Ted dreamed about starving children in poor countries, which was a topic in the news then, and saw his younger brother withering away with Ted unable to get to him to help. Later, he dreamed that he had to defend David from members of an evil cult, end quote. All of that from the article in the Washington Post. The brothers did grow to be vastly different, though. Ted was again described as a moody loner, brilliant, intolerant, rigid. David described as more outgoing, compassionate, and easy to be around. And as they grew, their beliefs began to take very different paths, if you will. Ted tried to mentor David in the, quote, correct ways of interpreting the world around them, Ted did not agree with David's decision to become and remain a vegetarian. 
Ted didn't like that David wasn't particularly crazy about guns, even trying to reason with David about the degree to which logic alone can reveal, quote, the truth. David would later go on to say that he and his parents regularly felt they had to be sort of very careful about the topics of conversation around Ted or risk upsetting what seemed like a delicately balanced psyche. But it was really any kind of social life with his own peers that he also seemed to be, well, lacking. Always perfectly content with his own company, he had gotten along at least somewhat with his peers on some level while in school. But he was so advanced that it was decided he would skip the sixth grade and go on to seventh. Ted himself would later say that this was an absolutely pivotal moment in his life because the older kids didn't really accept him and he said they bullied him. And there were times when he seemed so much like a normal growing kid, but then he had times where he would just shut down, refusing to speak or even make eye contact, just sort of staring downward, onward, just beyond reality out into the nothingness, out of reach. His parents did wonder, why did he have so few friends? As he got a bit older, why didn't he ever show much interest in girls? Up in his attic room alone for so long, his parents wondered, what was he doing up there? What was he thinking about? So Ted was very introverted and isolating, but according to sources, he just really enjoyed studying and especially chemistry. Again, neighbors in their Chicago suburbs said that the family very much seemed like, you know, civic-minded people and that it was obvious to everyone that both parents loved their sons completely and sacrificed everything for their well-being. It was noted that both David and Ted were far beyond average intelligence, but there was no mistaking the genius level Ted was at. They all noted that he seemed also like a very lonely kid. For reference, when he was 13 years old, he was already a freshman in high school. According to an article written in the Chicago Tribune, Ted, quote, already had started to struggle with traditional morality. In a journal entry, Ted recounted seeing a girl on the street when he was 13. He said, quote, something about her appearance antagonized me and, from habit, I began looking for a way to justify hating her within my logical system. But then I stopped and said to myself, this is getting ridiculous. I'll just chuck all this silly morality business and hate everybody I please. Since then, I've never had any interest in or respect for morality, ethics, or anything of the sort. End quote. So, you know, us today, living in this current world, would, in Turk and Wanda's position, take Ted for more evaluation, right? You know, is he on the autism spectrum? Perhaps take him to a therapist for some talk therapy. Something along those lines, anything really, but you must remember that. Back in the 50s, that sort of thing was for the rich, for the elite, not to mention the social stigma that it would have put on their family. 
If they openly spoke about Ted's troubles, it felt like the immediate question would be, you know, does he hurt animals? But Ted loved animals. He actually cherished animals. One of his former classmates said, quote, he was never really seen as a person, as an individual personality. He was always regarded as a walking brain, so to speak, end quote. Isn't that telling, guys? During this period, Ted became intensely interested in mathematics, spending endless hours studying and solving advanced problems. He also became associated with a group of like-minded boys interested in science and mathematics, and they came to be known as the Briefcase Boys for their habit of carrying briefcases. At 15 years old, in 1958, he skipped yet another grade and graduated high school. He immediately earned a mathematics scholarship to Harvard University. Under all normal circumstances, this would have been an overwhelmingly proud and positive moment for all involved. But once he arrived at Harvard and began to settle in, well, it became apparent he was not emotionally prepared for this level of pressure. Ted was just not really ready for this. He wasn't even old enough to drive yet. But once he started at Harvard, he did make a few friends. One friend from that time, a man named Roy Wright, was a Harvard classmate of his. He said in the Netflix docuseries about Ted, quote, He was a bit on the shy side, but definitely not antisocial. Once he got to know you, not once you got to know him, once he got to know you, he could talk and talk. And we were talking about things that weren't trivial. They weren't bullshit. They were about what's right and wrong, and Ted was concerned and was more savvy than I about corporate and governmental impact on the environment and on us, and some of the ideas he articulated later, I distinctly remember talking about, end quote. Other peers who knew Ted from Harvard in those early years described him as intelligent but socially reserved. So I think this is as good as any a spot to stop and sort of reflect on what we're seeing here with Ted and his childhood. Looking back at his parents, they appear to be the kind parents many of us would have loved to have had. They loved each other. They were intellectuals, appreciated education, and made sure to instill a love of nature in their sons. They fostered their interests, all the wonderful things. I see zero issue with the parents. I find no instance of them using excessive punishments, no abuse, no neglect, nothing of the sort. Quite the opposite, actually. With the plethora of source material out there, what did stand out in nearly all of them was when he was only nine months old, he developed that case of hives and was literally strapped down and left for quarantine and evaluation. His mother was always very passionate about stating that he was a happy, healthy, smiling, laughing baby boy before this hospital incident. The medical personnel would not allow her to stay with her infant son whatsoever, only letting her physically visit him, I believe, twice in the nearly two weeks that he was there. 
Even if the nurses and doctors came to check on him and evaluate, he was not picked up or held. His cries left to silence. Zero loving touch or comfort. So what can that do to a baby, even not a year old? Well, according to Scientific American, touch and emotional engagement boosts early childhood development. Environments where touch and emotional engagement are lacking or children who have not yet had ample physical and emotional attention are at higher risk for behavioral, emotional, and social problems as they grow up. There is a term I located that explains this, and it is called hospitalism. So children between the ages of six months to two years, even if briefly isolated, would, within minutes, begin crying and screaming for their mothers. This was followed by a stage of despair in which they would cease to cry, lose interest in the environment, and begin to withdraw. In the final stage, the children ceased to show interest in others and no longer responded to affection. Instead, they became passive and unresponsive, sitting or lying quite still with a frozen expression, staring for hours at nothing. If the separation continued, there was further deterioration, with children becoming ill or even dying. Moreover, it was found that some children would pass quickly through all of the phases, sometimes within a few days, and that those who experienced long-term separations often became permanently, emotionally, and even sexually abnormal. From an article on BrainMind.com, quote, However, Ted was not merely isolated. He was placed in a full-body restraint and was pinned to his hospital bed with splints, spread eagle, and completely naked. Hospital personnel felt that full restraint was necessary so as to prevent him from touching his sores or rubbing off the ointments and dislodging the compresses. As noted above, the amygdala becomes excessively active not only when stressed, but when stressed by physical restraint. After Ted returned from the hospital, all aspects of social and emotional functioning became bizarre. He ceased to respond to affection or social stimulation and became pathologically shy, severely withdrawn and unable to relate, end quote. So in other words, he never recovered from this horrific experience for him. It was said that when he was three years old and in nursery school, his teacher reported he would not play with the other children. So we can see here that while I've seen some sources sort of quietly dismiss this, I feel that this is the root, the beginning, the first crack appearing. He had, in his short nine months of life, not knowing a need for anything not being met. I cannot imagine what this experience for him must have felt like, but rest assured, he was never the same. So, take a mental walk with me, guys, for a second, right? Aristotle himself said, quote, There is no great genius without a touch of madness. End quote. And this has always resonated with me. 
I believe that there is a substantial correlation between the two. According to Psychology Today, the question is posed, are geniuses any more likely to experience mental disorders than the general population? The author of the article, Dr. Craig Wright, wrote that one-third of the, you know, air quotes, genius population regularly display or displayed some form of affective disorder. So that's roughly 33%. To give you an idea, only 5 to 10% of the general population display this. So that is significant. Dr. Wright went on to say that, quote, artists seem to be more affected than scientists. Recent studies suggest that scientists have the lowest prevalence of psychopathology, or 17.8% increase above the general public. So with geniuses who are scientists, they still have a nearly 18% increase of psychopathology than the general public. That is, again, significant. Many geniuses have reported that to be on the safe side of the line. And as Vincent van Gogh said, quote, work is the only remedy. If that does not help, one breaks down, end quote. This is profound and can explain Ted's later crimes. So Origins Behavioral Healthcare found that higher IQ is associated with more mental illness, including depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder. In fact, mood disorders and anxiety disorders were found to be extremely common, as high as 27% among Mensa members, whose IQs are in the top 2% of the human population. So what is a possible cause? It is suspected the reason for this high rate of mental illness has to do with psychological overexcitability. So, psychological overexcitability includes a greater tendency to ruminate and worry, both of which are common features of mood and anxiety disorders. For example, a very intelligent person may obsessively overanalyze a critical comment from her boss, trying to anticipate the possible consequences it might foretell. And really, this is very personal to me. This really resonates with me. And finally, we have the fact that he skipped a grade in his youth, which he later said was a pivotal moment in his life. And there could be some issues with this, such as the child having trouble adjusting to a new academic workload. They could suffer from social isolation, which Ted seemed to experience from his new peers. Some children that skip a grade have difficulties staying on top of the class, though I have my doubts that Ted had any issue with this. There is the problem with emotional unpreparedness, and we already know that Ted was severely introverted and withdrawn, much preferring his own company, locked in his room studying, than any forced socialization. So this would have added to this, and then finally these kids were prone to bully him, which again, we do know Ted experienced. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, all of this was going on during a time in our more recent history where access to child therapy was only for the more privileged, which when Ted was so young, the Kaczynskis were not. 
And even if they did, there was a tremendous negative stigma attached to having to get your child mental health help. Most people believed in using really harsh discipline to force their children into submission and, air quotes, masking to appear more normal, you know, or else, if you get my drift. And then a final thought, though I am not quite as confident in this theory, but I believe that with all of Ted's shyness, aloneness, isolation, all of the things, right, that he might have had some incel tendencies, if not at least tiptoeing around that particular label. I don't like that label, but it gives you an idea of who I'm talking about. Newsweek published an article written by James R. Fitzgerald, who worked on the FBI case around Ted many years later as the profiler. James stated that Ted referred to women as broads and black people as, well, one of those words I'm not going to say. It was discovered that Ted had never had a relationship with a woman in his entire life. He identified as a straight male, but never experienced sex with a woman, which greatly frustrated him. So the whole idea with the incel thing, we'll, we'll come back to that. More on that later. So I believe this gives us a rather clear picture of the various ingredients that made him the person he became. So let's get back into it. He completed his undergraduate degree in mathematics in 1962. He was 20 years old. But it was already at this point that young Ted was beginning to have very strong opinions when it came to the rapid advancement of technology. As hard as it is to imagine, Ted became increasingly withdrawn. When other students would attempt to interact with him, for example, maybe sit with him in the college cafeteria to eat, they would observe him eat as fast as humanly possible and then quickly leave. When he would come home to visit his family, much to his younger brother's delight, David later said that he would excitedly tell Ted about all of these books he was reading and thoughts about this and that and the other. And he said Ted became very, you know, dismissive of him, even saying that smart people had statistic streaks within them, which confused his doting young brother. Little did anyone know what a sadistic streak was brewing within him. So from 1959 through 1962, Harvard psychologists, led by Henry A. Murray, conducted a truly disturbing and ethically indefensible experiment on 22 undergraduates. It was said in The Atlantic that to preserve the anonymity of the students, the experimenters referred to the individuals taking part by code names only. One of those students that they labeled lawful, you know, in quotes, lawful, was none other than Theodore John Kaczynski, who later said he had been pressured into participating. Henry A. Murray was the chief researcher at Harvard and the director of the Harvard Psychological Clinic, during which he served in the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner of none other than the CIA or Central Intelligence Agency, helping develop psychological screening tests for applicants and monitoring military experiments on 
brainwashing. By 1950, after World War II, he resumed his studies on Harvard undergraduates titled Multiform Assessments of Personality Development Among Gifted College Men. Full stop. Ted was subjected to the last and the most absolutely intense of these experiments. So Henry's experiment was intended to measure how people react under stress, right? The subjects were not educated in what was going to be done to them. They were subjected to intense interrogation. Henry himself described it as, quote, vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks, primarily attacking the subject's ego and most cherished core ideals and beliefs. According to an article written for The Guardian, quote, each was simply asked to answer yes to the following question. Would you be willing to contribute to the solution of certain psychological problems, parts of an ongoing program of research in the development of personality, by serving as a subject in a series of experiments or taking a number of tests, average was two a week, through the academic year and be paid the current college rate per hour. Except the psychological problems, quote unquote, were never made clear to the students. The experiment was organized to be jarring, to catch them by surprise, to deceive them and to brutalize them. The students were told that they would be debating their philosophy of life with another student like themselves, but that, of course, was not the case. They were, in fact, confronted by a well-prepared lawyer. Again, from the Guardian article, quote, When the subject arrived, he was escorted to a brilliantly lighted room and seated in front of a one-way mirror. A motion picture camera recorded his every move and facial expression through a hole in the wall, electrodes leading to machines that recorded his heart and respiratory rates were attached to his body. And let's keep in mind being strapped down or into anything would have most assuredly been traumatic for Ted. As instructed, the unwitting subject attempted to represent and to defend his personal philosophy of life. Invariably, however, he was frustrated and finally brought to expressions of very real anger by the withering assault of his older, more sophisticated opponent, while fluctuations in the subject's pulse and respiration were measured. Not surprisingly, most participants found this highly unpleasant, even traumatic. They were also asked to write essays, being specific about their personal beliefs and aspirations. Then those essays were given to an anonymous individual who would then confront and belittle the subject, using the content of the essays as ammunition. Then after being filmed, having these very visceral reactions, right, the footage was played back to them so that they could see their own rage and anger over and over and over. It was said that someone was verbally abusing young Ted and humiliating him every single week. In total, Ted spent about 200 hours in this study. 
It was said by one of the researchers that each student had ultimately shared hundreds of pages of information about himself, his beliefs, his past life, his family, his college life and development, fantasies, his hopes, and dreams. Some believe Henry's experiments were part of Project MKUltra, which was the CIA's research into mind control. Still others believe that Henry, who was quite interested in hallucinogens, especially LSD, might have given the students this drug without their knowledge or consent. And yet, though Ted was the youngest participant in the study, Odd to me, he would later say that he didn't believe this experience had any real significant effect on the course of his life. Interesting. So this is where we're going to stop for the time being. Again, I'm so very fascinated by Ted and his early life and experiences, and I cannot wait to tell you what happens next. And as always, I want to know what you guys think about this so far. What do you think about the first 20-ish years of Ted Kaczynski's life? Do you think it contributed to his later crimes? That we'll get to in part two. You can always DM me on Instagram at Serial underscore Killing. Or perhaps consider coming over to Facebook to the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page that one of my most beloved listeners has created for me. The community there is growing rapidly. Um, I'm very active there. You can come talk to me there. Um, you can email me, SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com. But most importantly, thank you so much, guys, for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else. But you're listening to me, and that still floors me. And I appreciate every one of you. True Crime Fest was great, and next year, I'll be speaking at it. So, open up your calendars, May 11th, 2024. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then... Uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.